Here's the story of two dental hygienists from opposite sides of the world who became friends because they realized their professional lives were so in sync. One in Australia and one in America, both exuding their high passion for high-level patient care, both pushing back on legacy dentistry. If you are ready to revolutionize the practice of dental hygiene through science and innovation, join us as we are Disrupting Dentistry. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. We are here today to have one of our host chats, some fun topics that we choose. So this is Melissa Obratka, your American hygienist. And this is Tabitha, your Australian dental hygienist. So Tabitha, I want to take a minute before we dive into this episode to recognize the fact that you just got an amazing award. Share with us a little bit about this recognition you got. Oh, I knew you'd do this. I won. Um, <laughs> she rolled her eyes. I wish you could see. Yeah. Outstanding achievement for the dental industry for 2022. Uh, I wish I had sound effects to go. I just have to share that this woman here, she literally, there's no one I know that works harder than she does. She is absolutely incredible. Her heart is huge. She puts everyone else before herself. And the fact that she got this recognition is absolutely incredible. And um, as I posted on Instagram, there is in my mind, no one that deserves it more than you. So for all the things that people don't see behind the scenes that Tabitha is doing, she is constantly just lifting others up, supporting, researching, sharing all the things that she knows. Like there's nothing that she holds sacred. She is just so open to share because she wants, she knows that when she does better and shares that with other others, everyone else does better too. And that's her mission is that we're all in it together. So I just wanted to take a minute to recognize how, Amazing, wonderful, and incredible you are. Thank you. When I'm feeling down, I'll, I'll listen back to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and a big thank you to all the people that have um, congratulated me on Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram and sent me messages. It's it's greatly appreciated. I haven't replied to every single one of them because there's been so many and we kind of got slammed at ADX and then I jumped on a plane and flew to Queensland to teach. So it's been hectic, but I'm going to take a couple of days off this week. I'll start replying to people. <laughs> yeah, so that's exactly my point. You know, that is exactly my point for this outstanding achiever because she left a conference where when you work a conference, like just in case you guys don't realize, like you are on your feet 24-7, either teaching and then supporting and seeing people. It's a lot that goes on at a conference. It's like you're exhausted at the end of the day and you're literally going from like 7 a.m. to sometimes midnight. Um, and then this woman got on a plane and taught. 20 people hands-on by herself the next day. This is, yes, yes the definition <laughs> of an outstanding achiever. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Thank you. So tonight and morning in America, night in Australia, we're going to talk about HIV and oral health. Um, it was actually World Women and Children's HIV Day the other day, and I thought it was important that we discuss this. So HIV, human immunodeficiency virus, is a virus that attacks the body's immune system. If HIV is not treated, it can lead to AIDS, which is acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. And there is currently no effective cure. Once people get HIV, they have it for life. 
but with proper medical care, HIV can be controlled and people with HIV who get effective HIV treatment can live long, healthy lives and protect their partners. So I think that's something to recognise. Um, in the 80s especially, there was so much stigma with HIV and it unfortunately was a death sentence in the 80s before we had um, treatments and medications as well. So I think that stigma needs to really be broken down, that it's not a death sentence if you take care of yourself properly. Now, I'm not saying rush out and get it, but definitely, um, you know, there are things that we know about it now. So one, we know of ways to hopefully prevent it. And there's pretty simple ways that we can do that. And then um, also we know of ways to treat it. So it's important that we start kind of breaking down that stigma with HIV and especially the stigma that came with, you know, that you have to be a drug user to get it or you have to be partaking in risky, um, you know, risky situations to get it where we know married women get it off their husbands or married husbands get it off their, you know, wives or, right. you know, um, especially in the 80s, a lot of people got it in medical care as well. Right, right. So it had such an impact, especially in dentistry, um, how yeah. we provided care for patients. You know, that's where gloves came in, where we were, I mean, it's kind of gross to think about it, but like, oh, that was, that was protocol. Nobody was wearing gloves before that. Could you imagine doing like a non-surgical period with no gloves on? Oh. <laughs> Excuse us while we're gagging. I couldn't even imagine touching a denture with no gloves. That actually is more oh. Ugh. Oh my gosh. That's so gross. We don't think you're gross. I just don't want no, no. to my hands. <laughs> yes, yes. Like dripping down your fingernail beds and ooh, oh it's just Imagine underneath the fingernails of so many dentists. <gasps> <laughs> oh my gosh. I think I just threw open my mouth a little bit. I remember I worked <laughs> with a dentist um who trained with no gloves and it wasn't until he'd been out for a little while. And I said to him, like, that must have been, like, so weird. And he goes, no. He goes, I remember when they brought gloves in, how annoyed I was. So he goes, That's because yes. they never worked with them. So it was so weird for them to have the, especially I suppose gloves weren't as good as they are now because, like, gloves right. now. Like, when we're using, um, I remember when nitrile first came out. I remember how horrible nitrile was when it first came out. And you, you yes. felt like you didn't have the same ability to feel and, and, yes. and set. But now nitrile, I can't tell the difference between nitrile and latex gloves, to be honest. They feel like yeah. I only wear nitrile and it's fine. Um, yeah. So I imagine they had they, they would have been thicker and not as good when they first got them and they really would have Slippery. felt like they were so much. Yeah. And he said he hated them and he was so annoyed that they had to wear them. Yeah, that and was the like, feedback I got too. Yeah. I was like, that one, I'm so glad I came through in the, in the time of gloves, masks, and glasses. <laughs> Thank God. Oh my gosh. Could you imagine? Yeah. I literally just like got so nauseous thinking about yeah. that. And that's nothing to do with HIV. That's just to do with anything clean, just, anything. Like yeah. I just don't want to touch stuff like <laughs> at all. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, yeah. So, so it definitely changed dentistry and it definitely changed the world. A hundred percent. So, you know, and, and a lot of people would come back just to kind of bring it to today. Like when, with with the pandemic and treating patients because it definitely impacted how we did dentistry and same kind of thing it was a little bit of a pain in the ass you know putting all the extra ppe on and doing all the extra steps but i think i think just like hiv brought an awareness to things that we needed to do differently to not only to protect our patients but to protect ourselves as clinicians so so did covid because you know 
we, let's face it, we, we have been dealing with aerosols for as long as we've been in dentistry, but we maybe have not been managing them, managing them as well as we could have been and should have been to keep our patients healthy, keep ourselves healthy and reduce and mitigate a lot of risks. So like pre-rinsing, pre-rinsing again is one of those things that we're taught in school that everybody should get it because it reduces the bio burden that's going into our patients' mouths. And when we're treating patients, especially every time we see them, we're creating a bacteremia, bacteria is getting into their bloodstream. So pre-rinsing is an, a really important piece that the pandemic really highlighted and brought back. And I hope that it's staying in uh, people's protocols because it, it is so beneficial to patients. But I don't um, see it going away. What was that? I don't see it going away. I think it's going to stay. I hope, not. I hope so. I hope you're right. Um, and you know what? It's something that I personally started doing Prior to the pandemic, I brought that back into my protocol, and it's honestly saved me in situations where um, patients have had some issues that go on, but because it was part of my protocol and it was documented that it was done, it was there, it really was a helpful thing that I had it in that regime and um, documented it accordingly. So make sure you take the time to document the fact that you do those things too, because you never know what might come up or what might happen. And it's an important piece of your, your chart notes. But as per usual, we have totally digressed off of HIV. So <laughs> let's get back into uh, that. What are the stages of HIV? So when people with HIV don't get treatment, they typically progress through three different stages. But HIV uh, medications can slow or prevent the progression of disease. So with the advancements in treatment, uh, progression to stage three is less common today than it was in the earlier stages of HIV. So, Tab, why don't you go over stage one? So, stage one is acute HIV infection, and people have a large amount of HIV in their blood, and they're very contagious. Some people will have flu-like symptoms, and this is the body's natural response to the infection. But some people may not feel sick right away or at all. If they have flu-like symptoms and they think they have been exposed to HIV, they should seek medical care and ask for a test to diagnose an acute infection. Only an antigen antibody test or nucleus acid test can diagnose that acute infection. So stage two is chronic HIV infection. And this stage is also called asymptomatic HIV infection or clinical latency. HIV is still active, but reproduces at very low levels. People may not have any symptoms or get sick during this phase. And without taking HIV medicine, this period may last a decade or longer, but some may progress faster. People can transmit HIV in this stage. And at the end of this phase, the amount of HIV in the blood called the viral load goes up and the CD4 cell count goes down. So the person may have symptoms as the virus levels increase in the body and the, and the person moves into stage three. People who take HIV medicine as prescribed may never move into stage three. So that's an important factor. So again, mm. it's that early detection that's really important with HIV. So stage three is when it changes to acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, so AIDS. And it's the most severe phase of the HIV infection. People with AIDS have such badly damaged immune symptoms, they may get increasing number of severe illnesses called opportunistic infections. And we all understand what they are. People will receive an AIDS diagnosis when their CD4 count drops below 200 cells or they develop certain opportunistic infections. People with AIDS can have a high viral load and be very infection. Without treatment, people with AIDS typically survive about three years. 
Oh, that's really crazy, right? So the uh, global statistics of HIV, 28.2 million people were assessed with antiviral therapy as of June 30th, 2021. 37.7 million people globally were living with HIV in 2020. 1.5 million people became newly infected with HIV in 2020. 680,000 people died from AIDS-related illnesses in 2020. 79.3 million people have become infected with HIV since the start of the epidemic, and 36.3 million people have died from AIDS-related illnesses since the start of the epidemic. Wow. That's huge numbers, isn't it? They are huge numbers. Look at new HIV infections. New HIV infections have reduced by 52% since the peak in 1997. So that's some really good news. That's amazing. In 2020, around 1.5 million people were newly infected with HIV compared to 3 million people in 1997. That's that's excellent. Women and girls accounted for 50% of all new infections in 2020. That's an interesting statistic. Yeah. Since 2010, new HIV infections have declined by 31% from 2.1 million to 1.5 million in 2020. And since 2010, new HIV infections among children have declined by 53%. So that's fantastic as well. Wow. Yeah. People uh, living with HIV experience more severe outcomes and have higher comorbidities from COVID-19 than people not living with HIV. In mid-2021, most people living with HIV did not have uh, access to COVID-19 vaccines. Studies from England and South Africa have found that the risk of dying from COVID-19 among people with HIV was double than that of the general population, which makes sense when you think about immune system and and the strength to fight infection. Um, Sub-Sahara Africa is home to two-thirds or 67% of people living with HIV, but the COVID-19 vaccines that can protect them were not arriving fast enough. In July of 2021, less than 3% of people in Africa had received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. COVID-19 lockdowns and other restrictions disrupted HIV testing in many countries, which led to steep drops in diagnosis and referrals for HIV treatment. The Global Funds Act to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria reported that according to the data collected at 502 health, I'm sorry, 502 health facilities in 32 African and Asian countries, HIV testing declined by 41% and referrals for diagnosis and treatment declined by 37% during the first COVID-19 lockdowns in 2020 compared to the same period in 2019. So this is interesting right here because that's some of the the, um, outcomes of how COVID has impacted so many other health issues. Yeah, I was talking about this on the weekend with a friend and we were saying how one of the huge issues has been the disruption to health screening in so many things. And, you know, you have to wonder if some of those 2020 reduction rates are a little skewed when they had a drop in 41% of people accessing. Right, right. Yeah, that would make total sense. Like you have to critically think and, and appraise some of this information too. Yeah, and, and this is going to be a problem that we see across many fields. Like I know here in Australia, they stopped doing breast screening at some at a certain point. So women weren't having their breast um, screening. So that means, and we all know what happens to a patient, and I'm one of them, like you fall off the wagon with being in your regular appointment, and then you don't get around to making the appointment, and all of a sudden, instead of it being delayed six months, it's two years. 
Right. So what is going to be the outcome of these people that haven't had their skin cancer check or their breast cancer check or their HIV screening or referral for treatment once they know they have HIV and it got delayed? They're going to be catastrophic. Definitely. And so you definitely think like the death toll of indirect COVID is going to be huge as well. I 100% agree with you because it's that butterfly effect, you know, like there's so many other health screenings that are so essential for day-to-day life that, you know, and I'm not minimizing COVID, like there, there's people that have died of it, of course, but it's just incredible. And, And if you think about too, that the mental health impact of what just being in lockdown has done to people and, and, and our children, what, you know, their, their whole lives have been flipped upside down for a very long time. And it's been really hard for them to, you know, some of the kids did really well at home. Some of the kids didn't do well at home. Some of the kids did well when they went back. Some of them didn't know how to function when they went back. So there's so many things that COVID has impacted. We are not even close to seeing the results of that. I think it's going to take probably a good five years to see the, the subsequent issues that are going to come to a face because of this lockdown period that we went through. A hundred percent. Now, because it was World uh, Women and Children's HIV Day the other day, I'm going to focus on some of the women's statistics with HIV. Every week, around 5,000 young women aged 15 to 24 years become infected with HIV. In sub-Saharan Africa, six in seven new HIV infections among adolescents aged 15 to 19 are among girls. That's huge. Young women mm-hmm. aged 15 to 24 are twice as likely to be living with HIV than men. Around 4,200 adolescent girls and young women aged 15 to 24 became infected with HIV nearly every week in 2020. Wow. More than one third, 35% of women around the world have experienced physical and or sexual violence by an intimate partner or sexual violence by a non-partner at some point in their lives. And those women have experienced physical or sexual intimate partner violence are 1.5 times more likely to acquire HIV than women who have not experienced such violence. In Mm. sub-Saharan Africa, women and girls accounted for 63% of all new HIV infections in 2020. Wow. It's, you know, when you read things like that, you realize just some of the things that you might are not even conscious of that's going on in the world around us. Yeah. Yeah. So oral health and HIV, people with HIV AIDS have an increased risk for oral health problems because HIV AIDS weakens the immune system and makes it harder to fight off infection. Um, so some of the results of that are mouth ulcers, uh, herpes, A, viral infection, where prescription medication can be given to reduce healing time and frequency of outbreaks, hairy leukoplakia, which are white patches that don't wipe away, um, sometimes very thick and hair-like, usually appear on the side of the tongue or sometimes in, inside the cheeks and lower lip. Most cases, there's no treatment. In severe cases, prescription medication can be prescribed. Candidiasis, well, yellow or white patches that sometimes can be red. If wiped away, there is a redness or bleeding underneath and they can appear anywhere in the mouth. Um, some of these situations can be very painful for patients. Mild case, uh, mild case prescriptions of antifungal lozenge or mouth rinse or severe cases of a prescription antifungal. Um, patients with HIV AIDS also experience dry mouth and we have different medications or rinses for that. Red band gingivitis, ulcerative periodontitis and carpi sarcoma. 
So someone might be wondering what the red band gingivitis is, and it's like a linear gingivalethemia, which it's a it's gingivitis, but we see a more pronounced red band along that gingival margin in a HIV patient, and it's quite red and inflamed. And then ulcerated periodontitis, which we all are aware of as well, and then Kaposi's sarcoma. Um, so it's I think if you're old like us, most people probably think of Kaposi's sarcoma from um, the movie Philadelphia. Is that where you learnt what that was? That's where I learnt what it was. No, I learned about it in hygiene school. I don't yeah. even remember the movie Philadelphia. Wait, I know. I, yeah. I know I have to watch it again. I know I saw it. I just don't remember. So Kaposi's I'm that old. Yeah. <laughs> I can't even remember. <laughs> I do. Cause yeah. But I remember that, that's where I learned about what that was. So Kaposi's sarcoma is a disease in which cancer cells are found in the skin or the mucous membrane that line the gestational tract from the mouth to the anus, including the stomach and the intestines. And these tumors appear as purple patches or nodules on the skin and or mucosal membrane and can spread to the lymph nodes and the lungs. And it, um, you see this often in end stage cases, like when we're seeing this in stage three. Yeah. Yeah. So it often usually affects older men of Mediterranean or Middle European descent and men in um, Saharan Africa. It's associated with diabetes. Um, or we can see it with um, with HIV. So let me ask you this question. Um, when treating a patient who is HIV positive, what is your protocol? Are you changing anything or are you pretty much doing everything the same? At what point do you make any changes to your protocol? So um, I know I, want, I I had a patient years ago that was very reluctant to tell me that they had HIV or mm -hmm. to discuss their medications with me. And I very much said to them, I'm not going to treat you any different in like, I use universal precautions. So as far as I'm concerned, everyone has HIV that works into the chair, you know, and I'm going to mm -hmm. treat you the same that way. But what I am going to do different for you is, if you get gingivitis or and you're run down or things like that, we know it can affect you differently. So we're going to probably be a little bit more aggressive in our treatment. You know, we're going to jump in and we're going to intervene maybe, you know, more aggressively than I've maybe not in a patient without HIV. So, you know, I'm, I might refer you sooner than somebody else. Like, you know, if I don't get that result straight away, if you've got perio, I'm going to refer you much quicker. Like I'm going to be right. more aggressive in that, in that response or, you know, I might get you onto that mouth rinses a bit quicker than somebody else because I'm like, okay, I'm a little bit, you know, I just really want to attack that. But otherwise, you know, I am going to treat you the same way that I treat everybody else because so, I don't feel a risk seeing a HIV patient. Gotcha. Gotcha. So like a lot of, when, when they, when patients move from HIV to AIDS and let's say they were healthy enough to come in and have like received dental hygiene care, would you at that point like not use an aerosol or are you still using just do you feel comfortable with your universal precautions? I feel comfortable with my universal precautions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. You don't know who's got HIV and who doesn't when they walk in the chair. And you don't. honestly, most times our patient's not going to disclose it even if they know Correct. because because they fear discrimination. The stigma, yes, 100%. And we've had, um, you know, in, in some situations, I've, I've been supervising some care with HIV-positive patients, and it's, 
it's just interesting how, you know, the, the reaction goes from the clinician and it's just, this is why we have universal precautions in place, like you had mentioned. Um, but yeah, I think we just need to be really cognizant of the fact that it's their immune system and, you know, their bodies are compromised in that sense. So we have to put all of the tools in our own toolbox so that if we're seeing someone in that scenario, we can really promote as much health as possible. And, you know, there, here's another time where oral health should be on the forefront of HIV awareness, because if there's inflammation in their mouth, their immune system is turned on and triggered 24 hours a day with that low grade chronic inflammatory response. So that's going to affect how their body is dealing with HIV or maybe yeah. progress them in stage one, two, or three and, and impact them in that manner. So again, oral health promotion should really be a part of HIV awareness. Yeah, 100%. And with new antivirals, many patients are actually able to get their CD4 counts up to non-detectable and they're not even, they can't, they can't even spread the disease at those levels. So, um, you know, it has really, really, really changed um, in the way that they're treated and and the way that their outcomes are as well. You know, I watched a really good episode actually on, it was a series, a six-part series on Stan called It's a Sin and it's all about HIV in the 80s. And it was actually just terrific Ooh. to see how they were treated and and the stigma that was involved. And, you know, it, they should have never been treated that way then anyway. But mm -hmm. um, it definitely is, um, you know, something that they really, really suffered from quite badly when they're having all of the um, discrimination, but there shouldn't be any discrimination in our dental surgeries moving forward. We understand that it's a medical condition, just like all our patients come in from medical conditions, we treat them with that medical condition. Um, one thing though, that I was at a lecture a little while ago and it was quite interesting. So with the invention of PrEP, which patients can take to stop being infected with HIV. Mm -hmm. So whilst that has stopped HIV infections, it means that people have slacked off with um, using um, like condoms and things like that to stop sexual, mm -hmm. to stop HIV. And yeah. they've seen a rise in other sexually transmitted diseases such as gonorrhea. Um, we're having a little bit of an outbreak of syphilis in Australia at the moment. Um, oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> so um, in the state that was locked up the most, I don't know if that's correlated, but... <laughs> Wow, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> Not locked down, but just locked away from the rest of Australia. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, that has been a problem as well. That yeah. we're seeing other sexually transmitted diseases on the rise. That's very interesting. Um, and, you know, I we can put a link to this. I just, uh, as we we're talking and discussing this topic, I just found an article that says management of dental patients who are HIV positive, and it's a, a scientific summary. We can add a link to this in the show notes as well, just to kind of, you know, we just kind of scratch the surface on some of these things. Uh, this is uh, some science that can help you dig in a little bit deeper to it. Yeah, yeah no, excellent. And, um, and I suppose one of the other questions that I've had asked before too is like, do you need antibiotic coverage for patients in HIV? And antibiotic prophylaxis yeah. for HIV patients is not indicated as a routine practice. Um, the only thing that you would really have to think about is if the CD4 count is super low, you would be talking with their, um, with their specialists about what 
treatment they could have. So that's a that's a key takeaway <clears throat> from today's episode is like if you do have a patient who is HIV positive, asking them what their CD4 count is or what stage they're they're in will help you make the right decisions yeah. to treat that patient safely and accordingly and maybe maybe um postpone care if the cd4 count is not where it needs to be um and and then reappoint or get, at least get in touch with their uh, practitioner who is monitoring their hiv so that you guys can work together in conjunction to safely provide care for this patient and you know it's interesting too because this might be a good um time to discuss like protocols as far as inflammation management for these patients. Like if you have somebody who is not doing a great job with their home care or, you know, whatever the case may be, this is, this is a really key part in that patient education. And then maybe having them coming in every three, every three months for care, as opposed to, you know, traditionally every six you know, maybe that should be just part of an HIV patient's protocol so that we can manage biofilm and inflammation for them more comprehensively and help mitigate or, or reduce some of the risks or impact on their immune system. So this is another way that hygienists impact healthcare. Yeah. And then also um, one of the other complications of HIV is um, anemia. So mm-hmm. um, if platelet levels have dropped too low, then we can have um, bleeding abnormalities in HIV patients as well. So not as much as a huge problem for us, but definitely in other aspects of dentistry, if they're having extractions, um, that is something that we need to be looking at what their platelet levels are like and, and how they're going with it so that we don't have any abnormal bleeding. And then we want to make sure that we're really emphasising, like you were saying, that having good oral hygiene because we know that it facilitates that patient's ability to take medication, sustain nutrition, communicate, and we want to ensure that they're comfortable and infection-free because exactly like you said, we don't want to be attacking their immune system with perio. Right, right, right. And even we know that even gingivitis impacts the immune system with that chronic inflammatory response. So if we can mitigate and reduce and get patients healthier, and I mean, if somebody is is HIV positive and we just took the time to do proper oral hygiene instruction and even disclosing them first so they visually understand what's going on in their mouth, sending them home with a product that they can continue to do that at home is going to help them do a better job managing biofilm day to day because that's going to be so important to their overall health and their immune system. So it's again, oral hygiene cannot be an afterthought. It has to be front loaded and built into your protocol and your routine. You can't just chuck a goodie bag at people at the end and say, brush and floss, I'll see you next time. Guilty is charged. I've done it myself, but you know, when you know better, do better. And, and, this is what, you know, this is what this podcast is all about. It's not about making you feel bad about what you don't know. I just learned these facts myself, you know, with Tabitha and I going through this with you. So now it's making me think like, oof, when, you know, when I'm treating certain patients, my strategy is going to be different. And that's what we're here to do is just share the things that we are interested in learning and with you. And, you know, so that we can all do better together. Cause when you know, you know. Yeah. And we know that periodontal disease is more common among HIV infected individuals and when it is present, it can be more severe and aggressive and more difficult to manage. And necrotizing ulcerative periodontitis is associated with severe mm. system deterioration. So it requires time and aggressive dental therapy to treat. And it's also really important that we have prompt communication with that patient's HIV treatment provider to optimize their HIV-related care as well. So it's important we continue that communication, which is something that you and I talk about all the time, about, you know, communicating with doctors, communicating with specialists, 
And this is exactly the same, if, you know, if communicating with that patient's doctor about their periodontal status and maybe you need that patient's needs to be seen more, more often. Maybe we're yeah. on a four-month call, like, you know, when they are healthy, just so that we can keep on top of things because we know that things can move more aggressively and we have to be quite careful. So absolutely, as we talk about all the time. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And, you know, don't, don't be afraid to write letters and, and reach out to, um, primary care physicians or specialists because I think that they would be really appreciative of knowing the links because, you know, sometimes they don't even understand how comprehensive these things are. And, and just sending a little bit of science with your letter could go a really yeah. long way. Yeah, a hundred percent. So it was a quick episode tonight, but we thought it was an important one to address. And we'll put a couple of um, key points in our like websites that you can go to to read a little bit more about it. But I think, you know, it's important that we make sure we check that prejudice at the door yes. and treat these patients as we would treat everybody else, as in respect, but then also making sure we're aware of their oral complications and making sure that we are there and being on top of it and making sure that we treat things quickly. Definitely. And if you're using correct universal precautions every day, all day, you have nothing to be afraid of. Yeah, 100%. So don't so, cut corners, take care of no. you and them. Yeah, this is why infection control is important all the time. <laughs> exactly. Not just during a pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you everyone for listening. We've got another exciting episode that we're filming uh, later this week as well, which I'm excited about too. But, um, yes, yes. So um, <clears throat> go check out Level Up Preventative Care because Tabitha's got amazing courses always releasing because she is an outstanding achiever um, <laughs> and always always sharing her um, expertise. <laughs> and, and she doesn't sleep. She legit does not sleep. I mean, as her right now she's up and god knows how late it is by her after teaching all day and coming off of a freaking convention so uh <laughs> anyway <laughs> check her out because she has amazing amazing um education for you available in person or also virtually all right thank you everyone and we'll see you next time bye keep on disrupting Hey, thank you again so much for tuning into the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. We love to hear from you viewers and we love that you join us for our episodes. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And leave us a review. We love reading reviews from all over the world. It's one of the things that actually makes all the hard work feel really worth it when we get to see which episodes you're enjoying or some feedback that you give. So leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or write something on our Facebook or our Instagram page. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks so much for listening. Keep on disrupting.